we have come to Revelation chapter 10. Amazing, we're already 10 chapters deep and only in our third sermon, but we're not doing an in-depth study of every chapter or every phrase or every idea that we could study in this, in this study of Revelation. We're doing a general overview, a survey of the book. Genesis chapter 1, of course, introduces us to this book as the revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. And everything from that moment forward is centered on Jesus. The focus is upon Jesus. It's a message about Jesus from Jesus to the people of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And we see that in the first three chapters with the seven churches that Jesus is speaking to and trying to woo and encourage and in some cases admonish and correct. And then we also see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we saw the enthronement of Jesus after his resurrection, his ascension into the courts of heaven, and the beginning of his priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, where he is given this scroll that was sealed with seven seals. In fact, he could take the scroll. He is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And the seals then are opened sequentially, just as we saw the churches sequentially. And basically, in our previous two studies, we've seen that the book of Revelation is all about Jesus, a revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation spans the history of the church from the time of its author, John, to the return of Jesus Christ and beyond. So the framework of the book of Revelation are things, as Jesus said, things that are and things that are to come, right? And it concludes with the coming of Jesus, the end of the great controversy, the sin problem. The seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets are simply three different representations of that same time span, that begins with Christ's reception into heaven, as we saw in Revelation 5, as the Lamb slain, conquering, of course, and it concludes with the return of Christ from heaven as a conquering king. So you see, Christ is the bookends of this history that unfolds in Revelation, starting in the time of the prophet John and including with the coming of Jesus. Now, that's the general overview. Now, as we look at that outline of history more specifically, we notice that in the seven churches, the sequence of the churches, we had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, one right after the other with no break for any explanation. It's just the one, then the next one, then the next one, the next one. Okay? Very simple, very much like we saw in the book of Daniel and the other prophetic, the great apocalyptic book of Scripture, where the very first prophecy given is the sequence of the kingdoms outlined in the statue of the man, the great image. And it just goes from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, then you have the second coming. Very simple. There's no explanation of any other time periods. It just goes, walks through it as a whole. Same thing we see in the seven churches. However, in the sequence of the seals, that's a repetition of that same history, there is a pause between the sixth and the seventh seal to describe God's last day remnant people, symbolically represented by the number... 144,000, God's remnant people. So as it's going through that history again, it goes one, two, three, four, five, six. And just before we get to the seventh, which of course represents the coming of Jesus, the day of the Lord, it pauses to introduce us to this remnant people. And then it moves on. It doesn't give us the message that they're going to be giving. That's going to be found later in Revelation chapter 14. It doesn't tell us much detail except that they were there. And then it continues with the seventh seal. And of course, then it opens the six trumpets again, and then you, I mean the seven trumpets, and it goes through one, two, three, four, five, six, but in the same position where it pauses, it gives a little bit more detail of things to, to be aware of. Specifically, what you find in that break between the six and the seven trumpets is Revelation chapter 10, 
in Revelation chapter 11, which, of course, Revelation 11 concludes with the sounding of the seventh trumpet. So, today we're going to focus on that first pause in that sequence of the trumpets, which is Revelation chapter 10. Why is it there? What's its significance for us today? And what does it mean at all? That's the burden of our study today, is Revelation chapter 10. But before we study God's word, we need to begin with a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given us traveling mercies to even be here today. And thank you for the opportunity of Christian fellowship and now spirit-led Bible study. Lord, we ask that you would send that Holy Spirit who authored, inspired the author of this great book of Revelation to now reveal to us Jesus Christ in its pages. Help us to see Jesus more clearly and proclaim his name more confidently every day, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 10. We're going to read an entire chapter of Scripture today, all 11 verses of it. Okay, starting with verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head, his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. But I heard, and I was about to write. Now, verse 4. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. So there's some interesting things here, but we're going to continue. We're laying the foundation. We're going to come back now. Verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. At least that's the version that I have. I'm guessing that some of you have a version that doesn't have the word delay. It probably has a different word. Maybe time, right? We'll come back to that, but we're general overview, then we'll review. But, verse 7, in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, which is about to sound, so again, it gives us a timestamp of where we are in the sequence of the trumpets. We're in the before the giving of the seventh, so we must be in the time of the sixth. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So again, right in this historical chain, right in the sequence of uh, of events here, the six trumpets, right before the sounding of the seventh, there's a pause, and he is given this prophetic experience, this eating of the little book and his dialogue with the man standing on the sea and on the land. 
What possibly could all of this mean? So what we're going to do now is just go through a sequence of questions that we want to ask this passage and see if the scripture itself will give us illumination on what the possible meaning could be. Okay? For instance, we'll go back to the very beginning, verse, chapter 10, verse 1. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like filler, pillars of fire. Now, who is this messenger? Who is this person giving this message to John? Well, interestingly enough, if you leave your finger, home base, by the way, today is going to be Revelation 10. But leave your finger there and go back to the first chapter of Revelation. And notice this is Revelation, of course, verse 1 tells us the revelation of Jesus Christ. You notice in verse 5 that it's from Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 7, behold, he is coming how? with clouds, okay? And then it goes on in verse 12, as this voice speaks to him. Well, we'll just start with verse 9, just to give a little context. I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Then it goes on, verse 12, as you skip down there. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and one in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about his chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if, in re, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. So he's already had an encounter with a being that looks very similar to this, and that being was Jesus Christ. Very clearly, he goes on to say, I am the one who was dead and now is alive. He was given a message to John, which, by the way, we might be somewhat shocked to think, is Jesus the messenger? Is it possible? We'll stay right there in Revelation 1. Go back to the very first verse says that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, and what was he supposed to do with it? To show his servants the things which must shortly take place. So Jesus Christ is one of these messengers along this chain. Now, that doesn't make him less God. It doesn't make him an angel. It makes him simply part of the chain of communication from God the Father. There's a revelation of Jesus Christ that he was given by the Father, and Christ sends it along, and he takes his part in relaying this message. That's what we see in John chapter, I mean, in Revelation chapter 1 that happened to John. Now, um, this little, this angel, now we go back to Revelation 10, verse 2, it says, had a little book open in his hand. Now, we've already seen in the book of Revelation reference to a scroll being in someone's hand, and that someone was God the Father, but apparently God the Father was unworthy to open a scroll not because he was not God, not because he was any kind of sub-being or inferior at all, but because he simply had not done what Jesus Christ had done. Let's go back to Revelation 5 and see it for ourselves. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. Again, we're speaking of God the Father sitting on this throne, and this is what the Apostle John sees. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, again, that's the Father, 
a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then a strong angel, so I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So there was this closed scroll in the Father's hand, but no one was worthy to open it. Verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 4, So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. And why is that? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Who is the being in this instance that can come and open this scroll? Jesus Christ. Verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and on the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been what? Slain. This is a reference clearly to Jesus Christ. So if you go back to Revelation chapter 10, you see a, a messenger, an angel messenger, who fits the same description that John had already seen earlier when Jesus was relaying a message to him. By the way, it also matches the description that Daniel saw when, G- when G- Jesus was revealed to him. And he has this open scroll in his hand, a little book open in his hand. Now I want to pause here. I want to be very clear. I am not saying that this open little book is the exact same thing as that scroll which was open in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, we had, uh, I believe, Spirit of Prophecy clearly indicates what this scroll in Revelation 5, it's the entirety of God's counsel, the whole great controversy, the whole plan of redemption, but this is not that. This is a particular little book. This is a portion. This is a piece. This is something very specific that he has now open in his hand. Keep this in mind as we continue on. And by the way, Jesus has already been identified as a lion, has he not? In Revelation 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And here, when he opens his mouth to speak, as it's, it's as though a lion has roared. By the way, where does this imagery come from, speaking like a lion roaring? <laughs> Let's go back to the book of Amos. Amos, if you would. Again, home base is Revelation chapter 10, but the book of Amos gives us some interesting insight about this. Hosea, Joel, Amos, that little... (laughs) Take a moment. Amos chapter 3. Now, there is a very famous passage, at least inside the Seventh-day Adventist Church, in uh, Amos chapter 3 and verse 7, that I believe is very applicable to the study of prophecy that we're doing in the book of Revelation, when it says, Surely the Lord God does how much? Nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Which is interesting, the book of Revelation. Servant, prophet, is almost completely uh, interchangeable in the book of Revelation. But look at the next verse. When it talks about the Lord revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets, what does it say? A lion has what? Roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? It seems that the Apostle John here, again, all throughout the book of Revelation, you see references and allusions to previous Scripture. As we talked about on the very first message of this series, the book of Revelation is at the end of the Bible, and it assumes you've read all the books that come before it. So when it makes reference to, say, Jezebel or Babylon or some Old Testament thing, it expects you to know it already, right? And here I believe we see another reference to that when it talks about how, verse 3, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. 
of Revelation chapter 10 and verse 3, I believe we're talking about Jesus Christ is this angel messenger. But again, what he's holding his hand, and we'll come back to this in a moment, is not the entirety of the entire plan of salvation. It's not the entire great controversy. It's a little book that's specific to this time frame that needs to be understood right before the sounding of the seventh trumpet in this particular instance. Now, let's go to these seven thunders. Let's just move right through the passage. Notice as this lion roars, as Christ speaks, it says in verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 3, it continues, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, when we say that thunder spoke, I mean, it's unintelligible. You know, we just say, oh, the thunder boomed, it roared. But the seven thunders apparently had voices, and apparently they were discernible because he was about to write down what they said. Look at verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 4. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. So apparently they had a message. They said it out loud. John heard it. He understood it, was ready to pick up his pen and write what he heard and understood. But what stopped him? Another voice. I heard a voice from heaven say to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Now, I'll tell you something. That's incredibly frustrating to me. I don't know of anything more frustrating than me and somebody has to tell me they need to talk to me, but they don't tell me what the thing is. The most frustrating thing in the world, right? And here the Bible seems to do that. Oh, these seven thunders said a thing, and I was about to tell you what it was, but then I was told I can't tell you. So, well, why did you tell me you could have told me something and you didn't? Just leave it out, right? Why does John go to the trouble of saying, I heard these voices, I understood their sound, I was about to write it down, but I can't tell you. It's just, but it's interesting that it happens at this time in this particular thing. Why would we have this experience? Why is it included in Scripture? It's a good question. Again, clearly John heard and understood what the seventh understood. A voice from heaven specifically instructed John not to write down their message. So obviously there was more information John could have given us, could have recorded in this chapter, but... He was explicitly forbidden to do so. Notice he didn't write it down because he forgot or because he was lazy. It was because God gave him the information, and then God said, don't give him the information. What a weird thing. Is it possible that, uh, of course, that God knows stuff that we don't yet? But is it possible that there's information that God could have given about this particular thing that would have been helpful? Perhaps even. And he says, no, 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 you know what? No. No, no. Don't write it. Tell them you heard something. Tell them there's more they could know. But don't tell them what it is. Now, is that like Jesus to do that? Leave your finger in Revelation chapter 10. Let's go back to the Gospel of John. Same author. Let's go to the Gospel of John. John chapter 16. Fascinating, fascinating. John chapter 16. Notice what Jesus is saying here. And I want you to notice the historical context in which he is saying it. I believe that bears on our study today. So we'll start here, John chapter 16. He's, honestly, he's, uh, he's kind of telling them some not-so-good news. He's coming to the close of his ministry. 
He's talking about the things he's about to suffer, how he's going to be taken away from them, how he's going to go away, and all of this stuff. And as he does, he gets down to verse 12, and in the middle of this explaining that he's going to go away and that the Holy Spirit would come, and he gives them this little insight in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot what? Bear them now. He said, oh, there's so much I could tell you. What is it? Mm, no, it's not for now. Now, does, that, does it imply that there's some things he'll never tell us? No. He says, but for this particular occasion, for this event, for what you're about to experience, I could tell you more, but not now. You couldn't bear it now. It's not good for you now. It'll be helpful later. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll reveal to you all things and everything will understand. But for right now, there's more I could say, but it's best if I don't. Now, I find that fascinating. Now, let's think about the historical context. What portion of Jesus' ministry was he saying this? As he's coming to the end of his ministry, he's about to face an unfair trial, public scorn and shame, and finally, physical execution. He's going to be killed. And his disciples are about to go through a horrendous upheaval of their faith, a great disappointment, if you will. They have looked to Jesus as the Redeemer, which of course he is, but they didn't understand what that meant. They were thinking of a temporal Savior from the, from the bondage of the Romans. They were thinking that he was going to have a literal kingdom, that he was going to restore the... They had their hopes up here, and Christ could have told them more explicitly some of those things that it was going to dash their hopes and dreams, right? But he said, it's best not now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he'll lead you into all truth after I've left. But for now, it's better not to have it. Now, I find that fascinating, that as Jesus was going into this thing that he understood very clearly, and his disciples were about to go through a very trying experience, a test of their faith, he specifically withdrew information he could have given them. Interesting. And, of course, the disciples went through a tremendous disappointment, did they not? They were completely undone. They were, their hopes were shattered. Their dreams were gone. They were distraught. You know, you think of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with those disciples. Why are you so down? Do you not know what's gone on this weekend? We had hoped he was going to be, but now. By the way, in that instance... On the road to Emmaus, did Jesus do the same thing? Could he have revealed himself to them? Absolutely. But he chooses not to yet. Why? Because they need to go through the Bible study. They need to review the faith. They need to have their faith tested and see, oh, this is what it really meant. Then he reveals himself on the other side. It's interesting that that's what Jesus himself had done earlier in his ministry. Again, let's go back to Revelation. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Not yet. Not yet. Still in John chapter 16. So he tells them this in John chapter 12, uh, 16, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you now, but you cannot bear them now. However, verse 13, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Now skip down to verse 20. What does Jesus tell them their experience is going to be? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will what? 
weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. He's like, you're going to go through a horrible experience. Just so you know, you're going to weep and lament and mourn and sorrow. But after that, your sorrow will be turned to joy. Interesting. It's almost as though something is going to be a really bitter pill to swallow, you know. But you need to go through it anyway. Right now you're thinking, oh, Jesus, this is a sweet message. Jesus is going to be the king. But boy, when it lands, when you fully understand what really happened, it's going to be a tough pill to swallow. But after that, get up, go again. In fact, they were going to prophesy to many nations, were they not? Fascinating. Now, similarly, again, on the road to Emmaus, the same thing happened. Is it possible, as we go back to Revelation 10 now, is it possible Well, it's a rhetorical question. I'll just go ahead and lay it out there. I believe it is possible that just as there was more that Christ could have told his disciples, but it would have not been best for them at that time, that something similar is being described here in Revelation chapter 10. That at the time these prophecies of this little book, whatever this little book is, and we're going to come back to that in a minute, the prophecies of this little book that's it would be best, as those were expiring, God could have told them more, but he knew it would be best if they didn't have that information yet. So what's in the little book? What is the information here? Well, only one book actually matches the description given. A little book, think about the qualifications that are within this chapter. It's a little book of prophecies that extend to and terminate during the period of the sixth trumpet or the sixth seal, the sixth church, that sequence of events, that chronology. Right? It's something that had been prophesied, a time element, which, by the way, we should address this at this point. When it says here that, verse 6, that there should be delay no longer, I challenge you, go home and look that up. In any scholarly work, they will tell you there's no reason for that word delay to be there. The Greek word is chronos, which is where we get chronological, chronology, time, sequential, continuous time. This leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. And here the messenger is saying, I believe this is Jesus Christ saying that time will be no more. Now, you might think, oh, well, that's the end of time. Well, obviously, it's not the end of time because look at the very next verse. Verse 7, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, which he is about to sound, there's still more stuff to come, right? So obviously it's not the end of time, nor is there any reason it should be translated delay. Apparently what it's talking about is the time that's mentioned in this little book is expiring now. The time is no more. The time element that this little scroll talks about is up. It's coming to a conclusion. It's ending. Okay, Time shall be no more. And so here we have a little book of time prophecy that will extend to and terminate in this time of the sixth church seal trumpet. And only one book contains that, and it's not the entire book. It's not just the entirety of the book of Daniel, right? There's one specific prophecy that terminates, because there were prophecies that extended and terminated earlier, but there's one that would extend to this time in earth's history. And that's the 2,300 days of Daniel after 8 in verse 14. 
unto 2,300 days, or years, prophetically, the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And here, the angel messenger, which is Jesus Christ himself, because the whole book is about Jesus Christ, is now explaining the work of Jesus Christ as he transitions from, most, from holy place to most holy place. And he holds up this little book, and he says, time will be no more. Time is up. Now, what does it mean to eat the book? Which, by the way, look at verse 7 again, just to make sure we see that this is a book of prophecy that he's talking about. Again, verse 6 ends that there should be time no longer. Then verse 7 says, But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, and he's holding this little book, the prophets. So he's talking about a prophetic book that has a time element that expires in that time of the sixth trumpet or the sixth seal, the sixth church. That's sixth out of seven sequence. Verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. Now, be clear, he's not being rude here. (laughs) He was instructed to go take the book, right? If he failed of that, then he would be, he has to follow the order. In the order, he says, go take the book. So he said, please give me the book. So I went to the angel and said, give me the little book. And he said to me, take it. And and it doesn't say read it. What's it say to do with it? Eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Sometimes my wife will do that. She's like, oh, can you smell this? It's really bad. Well, no, I don't. You've told me it's going to be bad. I don't want to smell it. Why would I ever? You, I, you already smell I trust you. you know, throw it out. But here he's handed a thing, is told to eat it, and said, boy, this is going to make your stomach bitter. But it'll start off sweet. Right? And he could have, of course, he could have said no, but this is a command from the Lord. You, you do what he says. So he takes it. Verse 10, then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Now, This also is a reference back to previous experience in Scripture. Go to the book of Ezekiel. Again, we're living in Revelation 10 for today. But Ezekiel, right back there next to Daniel, chapter 3. Tell me if this doesn't sound like something that John is experiencing in Revelation 10. Ezekiel chapter 3. We'll start with verse 1. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. Sounds pretty similar, yes? Okay. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat the scroll. (laughs) He made me eat it. The picture is almost there that I opened my mouth and he put it in, right? At least John got to take it and feed it to himself. But either way, the book goes in, yeah? Verse 3, he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with the scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech or of hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of, uh, not to many people of unfamiliar speech or of hard language whose words you cannot understand, Surely, had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. 
But the house of Israel will not listen to you because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. By the way, the message, check this out now, in Ezekiel, the message that he was supposed to eat and then give out to digest and then express, yes, was not intended for the whole wide world. It was intended for the church. It's interesting. It's interesting. He says, I'm specifically not sending you out there. This is a message for the people of God. They need to hear this, right? Now it goes on. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like abundant stone, uh, like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you, and hear with your ears. So that's interesting. He says, receive it in your mouth, but of course that's symbolic. It means to take it in, to take it into your heart, to eat it, to really digest it, to, to soak it in, to understand as much as study a thing. To really take this book in. And notice that taking it in also includes sharing it with others. Right? This is what Ezekiel has. You're supposed to eat it and share it. That was Ezekiel's sweet as honey in the mouth, but bitter in the stomach experience. John seems to be taking that same experience now again for himself as the Lord instructs. Revelation chapter 10. Let's look at it again. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, verse 8, spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Now you might say, now wait a minute. In Ezekiel, his eating included taking it in for himself and sharing it with others. Here in Revelation chapter 10, it seems to be just taking it to himself. That is, until you get to verse 11. What does verse 11 say? And he said to me, you must prophesy. What's that next word? Again. What's the implication? If you do something again, it means you had already done it the first time, right? So apparently he was supposed to. John was supposed to take in this message and, like Ezekiel, prophesy about it, understand it, and spread it out. And the experience, when you first have it, oh, it's going to be sweet, it's going to sound so good, it's going to be popular, but there's going to be a turning point. Right? Exactly, by the way, what the disciples experienced in their ministry with Jesus. Oh, we have this great, Jesus has come, he's the Messiah. Had Jesus come, was he the Messiah? Absolutely true. Though their understanding of his ministry was skewed, their message was actually accurate. Right? The time had come, Jesus was here, the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Except when they said King of the Jews, they had a different picture in their head, right? Than what Jesus was saying. So every time Jesus, with that picture in your head, you study through the life of Christ, as we have did did for a couple years with our Desire of Ages study, you notice every time Jesus says, like, guys, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to put me on trial and kill me, that just didn't match at all with the picture they had in their head. So they would just dismiss that. They would kind of filter that out. Like, ah, you don't know. You're just being humble. He's like, I'm being serious. I'm going to die and raise it. Nah. Right? Their worldview said, no, no, this is what it must mean. And we look back now and we say, how is it possible? And Jesus said so clearly what he was going to experience that they didn't, how were they distraught? 
because they had a picture in their mind of what Jesus was saying that pleased them more, that fixed with a a picture that they grew up with in their mind, right? And so, of course, that had to be the right thing. And when Jesus didn't do what they thought he should do, even up to the last moments, they were saying, oh, here he comes, he's going to get off the cross. Here come the nails. I wouldn't want to be standing near it. Oh, oh, he's going to come. And he died. And they were all completely just, we didn't see that coming. If only we had known. Apparently, in the time of the sixth trumpet, the sixth church, the sixth seal, just before the coming of the Lord, there's a time element message that was supposed to be preached, that was supposed to be understood and preached. And they got excited about this. There was a movement. Oh, my word, we understand. Jesus is coming soon. Now, is Jesus coming soon? Yes. Did Jesus come in 1844? Hang on now. He didn't come here in 1844. But he did transition from the holy place to the most holy place. Right? So Jesus did move. From one place to another in 1844. They got the date right there. They just, the picture of what it meant was incorrect. But the message got out. It's fascinating that Jesus seems to take the original disappointment of his disciples and repeat it in his last day church. Which, of course, wasn't a church at that point, a movement known now just as the Great Advent Movement or the Millerite Movement. We're going to have a little quarter about Adventist history coming up. So if any of this is like, what is that? Just keep coming back. We're going to go through it. But there was a man by the name of William Miller who had studied these things out, and the movement started up and started to understand, oh, man, there is a great... Jesus is coming. They were studying that little book. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, the time prophecy that was expiring in their age. They said, we've stumbled upon great truth. Jesus is coming back. And they started spreading the message that Jesus was coming as king, which is exactly what the disciples had been saying. And the Lord allowed this to happen. In fact, the impression was given. Remember those seven thunders? Do you think they could have clarified any of this confusion? Absolutely. But the Lord said, mm, 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 mm. don't write that part. They need to go through this. Just like Christ had already said, could he have given more information to help really, really drive home and, and tell the disciples? No, okay. I've told you, it's in there. Christ's word had already included the clarification, but just let it ride for now. We'll talk about it on the other side. The prophetic experience of John recorded in Revelation 10 toward the end of the chronological history represented by the seven churches, seals, and trumpets, specifically during the sixth church seal trumpet, Christ is seen declaring that the time prophecy recorded in a little book of prophecy was expiring and that only time and that and the only time prophecy that fits that description is that of Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14 the 2300 years that began in 457 BC and expired in 1844 AD with the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary would commence Finally let's go back to those seven thunders Think about this the, seven, what this, the message that the seven thunders had could not be recorded in Scripture. It was heard, it was understood, but God, the Bible had, God had specifically said, don't put that in Scripture. 
Don't write it down. Now, does that mean we can never know what the seventh thunder said? No. But it would have to wait until after the event had been fulfilled, and then through the Holy Spirit, the clarification could be given. Is that what we saw in Jesus' ministry here? He said, I won't be here, but when the Spirit of truth has come, he'll lead you into all truth, and he'll help you understand the things that I would have told you, right? Is it possible that after the canon of Scripture closed, and after the event, the great disappointment occurred, that the Spirit of the Lord could send a message and tell us what the seventh thunder said? Would that be okay then? Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally valid. Which brings us to this one passage from the Spirit of Prophecy. There is another one, but we're going to save that one for a later sermon. But this is from the seventh Bible commentary, uh, page 971. The special light given to John, which was expressed in the seven thunders, was. This is where we just. Okay? Now all of a sudden, everybody's got an extra 30 seconds. <laughs> what, does this, what did the seven thunders say? The special light given to John, which was expressed in the seven thunders, was a delineation of events which would transpire under the first and second angel's messages. As the people were proclaiming, the hour of his judgment has come, which was true, but their picture was, that means Jesus is coming back to the earth. The events that would transpire under the first and second angel's messages. Notice this. It was not best for the people to know these things, for their faith must necessarily be tested. In the order of God, most wonderful and advanced truths would be proclaimed. The first and second angel's messages were to be proclaimed, but no further light was to be revealed before these messages had done their specific work. He needed the message of the judgment beginning in heaven to go out with a loud voice. And he said, yes, we can tell you, by the way, it's not what you think it is, and it's going to be quite disappointing. You're not actually going to see anything on earth, is it? you know, it have watered down the thing. He's like, just keep proclaiming the message with that misconception in your mind, and when it's over, we'll clear it up for you. Just like Jesus had done, there's many things I would tell you now, but you can't bear it, but when he, the spirit of truth, has come, will lead you into all truth. It's a powerful thought. And now let's put it in the larger context as we bring it to a close. I want to notice something. Again, the seven trumpets, seven churches, the seven seals, all cover the same time span. And what's fascinating to me is the beginning point, as we saw in Revelation 5, was the day of Pentecost, which is the inauguration of Christ into heaven after he was slain on the cross to begin his holy place ministry as a priest in heaven to intercede on our behalf. The beginning of the most holy place ministry begins the sequence. And here, as we're coming to a close of the sequence, that same Jesus stands, time will be no more. And the prophecy talking about his transition to the most holy place is now coming to a commencement. It's now beginning. The bookends of the sevens of the first part of Revelation are the beginning of Jesus' work in the holy place and the beginning of Jesus' work in the most holy place. The whole thing hinges front and back, centered on Jesus Christ and his ministry in our behalf. It's a powerful thought. It's a beautiful thought. That we're not dwelling, dwelling about beasts and deadly things. We're talking about Jesus, and the things that were explained are just those things which transpire in between these two pillars of Jesus' ministry after the cross of Calvary. It's a beautiful thought. So, with that in mind, I believe firmly that we are living after time prophecy is done. 
I believe firmly that Jesus Christ is still active in our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary, doing a work right now. And that the great disappointment at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus had planned and prepared for it. And the great disappointment at the beginning of his most holy place ministry, Jesus had planned and prepared for it. And now we're living beyond that, and the next great event will be the second coming of Jesus. Friends, Jesus is coming again, and I believe soon and very soon. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.